today we're actually kicking off our Advent uh, sermon series. So for the next three weeks, really four weeks at the Civic Center, we're going to be talking through this. So would you guys open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 before Pastor Andrew comes to preach? I'm just going to read our text uh, and let us soak in the Word of God. This is Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to begin with verse 26. If you want to read along with me, it'll be on the screen as well. This is the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be bo born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, man, thanks for coming this morning to worship with us. I know that you could be a lot of different places. So if you're new or maybe you're not a Christian, church hurt, and you kind of crawled, crawled back in today, we're really glad that you're with us. Uh, my name is Pastor Andrew. I get to serve here as one of the pastors, and I just want to say up front, there are no silly, stupid questions when it comes to the claims of Jesus, and so this is really a safe place for you to wrestle with who he is and why he came. Uh, some of you are wondering, maybe you didn't grow up in a, in a church, or maybe like me, you actually grew up in church, but you didn't really celebrate Advent, and so you don't really know what this is all about. Well, well let me just take a second and define what Advent really is and why we want to pause and spend some time here. Um, the, the word Advent actually comes from the Latin word Adventus, which just very simply means the coming or arrival. So it's a, it's a celebration of the, the coming and the arrival of Jesus. Now, it's interesting, before this was something that Christians celebrated, it was actually an ancient Roman ceremony. It was called the Adventus Ceremony, and what would happen in an Adventus Ceremony is when the Roman emperor was off to battle and then would return home to Rome, uh, what would happen is this giant celebration, this huge ceremony, where they would celebrate the arrival and the coming of the emperor as he returned home. And what would happen is the whole city, the whole place would just go bananas as they'd celebrate the emperor and his, his battles and his victories on their behalf. It was like he's been off to war fighting for us and we are getting the benefits of his labor and his fight. And so we're celebrating and we're throwing an epic party in our city, the Ad Adventus ceremony. Now what's funny is the early church, they, they heard of that and they thought, that's actually a really great idea. We're gonna steal it and make it our own. 
And they did, and they made it about Jesus, the true king, who has come back home for his people. And we, his people, get to celebrate the victory of his battle and all that he has done on our behalf. So uh, the Advent season is the season where we remember the coming and the arrival of Jesus into the world, and we celebrate that. And it's also a season where we look to his second coming. He's actually going to return home again for his people. And so it's a celebration between two different places. That's what we're going to be doing today and over the next couple weeks together. Really, really excited. Um, Now, today is a really, really special day as we get into that passage that we just read together. Uh, Theologically, this has been called the Annunciation, which is a big deal. This is like God announcing some great news to his people. But I want to show you, before we get into it, I want to show you a picture of what you're probably going to see around our city or maybe in people's homes. This right here, it's beautiful. Uh, It's very quaint and cute. Uh, What do you think of when you see this image? Does this communicate to you something really powerful about God? Does it tell you something really special about who he is and why he came? Uh, Chances are you're going to see images just like this when you go to the, the, the store Uh, When you visit people's homes, you're going to see this on fireplace mantles, that nativity scene. You'll see it in people's front yards. And what I would argue is this, that in our culture in Oklahoma, that image doesn't really tell us anything special or jaw-dropping about what happened at Christmas. It's cute. It's sentimental. It's a kind of a, a sweet little thing, but it doesn't communicate any sort of weightiness or power or beauty behind what God did. So here's the question. What is so earth-shattering about a baby in a manger? What is so life-changing and jaw-dropping about a little baby boy 2,000 years ago and a group of people surrounding that boy with angels and all of this stuff? As I said, Luke chapter 1 has been referred to throughout church history as the Annunciation because what's happening in this passage is this giant announcement that if you will take it in, and make it a part of your heart, it really will have the power to change you. If you really will receive the announcement of what is being said in Luke chapter one, it will completely change the way you live, the way you see the world. It'll it'll really even have the power to change you from the inside out. So that's where we're headed, and I just, there's so many things that we could get to in this passage, but I just wanna give you two, two big ideas, two big announcements. Here's the first announcement in Luke one. The true king has arrived. That's the announcement in Luke chapter 1. The true king has arrived. Uh, I want you to notice the royal language that's used here. Look at Luke chapter 1 verse 31 and just think about all the royal language being tossed out here. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. That means savior. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he, this little son, this little boy, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, this little boy, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Did you notice all the royal language? You have throne, reign, kingdom. Like, this is packed full. And here's the big idea that what the angel is telling Mary is not, hey, there's this really special boy that's gonna be born, or there's this political figure that's gonna be born, or there's this religious zealot that's gonna be born, or a a moral teacher. What Gabriel, the angel, is telling Mary is that the king, the true king, 
He is entering the world, and he is going to reestablish his kingdom on the earth. Now, this is profound, and I think the reason why for many of us this isn't like immediately jaw-dropping, it's not like you just heard Gabriel say that, and you gasp, oh my goodness, I can't believe that's what's really happening here, and I think the reason why you don't gasp and why your jaw doesn't drop is because you and I are about 15 minutes late to the story. Here's what I mean. Um, I've been married for almost 10 years. I love my wife. Uh, we have three little kids together. There, there are not many things that she does that annoy me, even after 10 years of marriage. So I feel like we're doing okay. And uh, there, there are a few things that annoy me about her. And one is when we watch movies together. So I'm just gonna be honest and kind of air our dirty laundry with you guys. One of the things that drives me crazy is sometimes when we're watching a movie, uh, because she's with little people all day long and doesn't get any time to herself whatsoever, she's going, going, going constantly. There are times where it's like, hey, let's rent a movie, let's watch it, and we'll sit down to watch it. And rather than her being super engaged, uh, she's doing what she doesn't get to do all day long. And she kind of disconnects and unplugs, gets her phone out, and is flipping through social media. So she'll be on Facebook, she'll be on Instagram, she'll be checking stuff out. And I'm over here watching the movie, and it's bothering me because I'm like, you are missing some really key plot stuff that the whole movie's not going to make sense now. And then about 15 minutes in, she'll turn and she'll say, no, who, who is she again? And why, why is he kissing her? I, I thought they were together. And, I, and, and it's like, this is why you have to pay attention, right? And because she missed some of the key narratives that are kind of being built in the first 15 minutes, about the last 15 minutes or so of the movie, she gets bored because she doesn't really know what's happening or is, she's not really anticipating the resolve at the end. And so she starts to disconnect again, maybe gets back on social media and unplugs from the movie. And then later that night, we'll be laying in bed and she's like, whatever happened to, you know, so-and-so? And it's like, you missed the, that was, the and, and then she'll say, well, the movie just wasn't that good. I wasn't that interested babe, it follows a, a narrative. There's plots that are being built and the, you've got you've to track with it at the very, you know, so that's, if I could think of one story to describe uh, maybe American Christianity, it would be that. You and I, when it comes to the story of God, we're about 15 minutes late. We've missed some of the key plot lines that are being developed in scripture. So by the time you get to Luke 1, it's not that interesting. Let me, let me say it like this. Um, this is a story that's so profound, but we have reduced this story to something that goes like this. You're bad, God is good. Um, he came into the world and lived the life that you couldn't live and died a death that you deserve to die and rose again so that you who are bad could be forgiven and reconciled to God. Now that's true. What I just said was true, but that's only part of the story. There's more to this story than you're bad and God's good and he lived, died, and rose again for you. This story actually starts in Genesis chapter one. And Genesis one is profound. It's the most, Genesis one and two are the most profound chapters in the Bible because it's setting up the plot line of the whole thing. And here's what God does. You've got to get this. He creates the earth and he creates the Garden of Eden to be a special dwelling place, his kingdom, so that God, who is the true king, could establish his kingdom with people and live together forever. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter one. God the king is creating us so that he can live with us in his kingdom. And he doesn't just create us to be slaves. In fact, if you read Genesis one and two the way an ancient Near Eastern person would have read it, they would have realized that God creates Adam and Eve as uh, basically co-rulers with God over the kingdom that he was creating. 
Uh, some of you, you picture Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden just lounging, hanging out, uh, enjoying being naked together and eating grapefruit together. And you think, man, that sounds like my ideal vacation, right? Uh, I, I want to just hang out, don't want to do anything. I want to uh, be with my spouse or the person that I love, eat great food, sim- sip mimosas. That was what it was like before sin entered the world. Well, well, not really. There's more to the story. In fact, Adam and Eve were not lounging in hammocks for all of eternity before sin entered the world. They had a tremendous job that was given to them. They were called by God to uh, basically, underneath the authority of the king, rule over the whole world. In fact, what God wanted them to do is take this garden, the Garden of Eden, and expand it across the whole world. They were called to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth and to fill it. What that means is that garden was not supposed to stay this big forever. It was, it was supposed to expand across the whole world so that the whole world could be filled with the beauty of the kingdom of God and more and more people would dwell with this king. Now, we know the story in Genesis 3, the enemy, the serpent, as he's described. He enters the scene, and he begins to tempt Adam and Eve, and he, and he gives them the, the lie that you and I have believed ever since, which, which goes like this. Do you want joy? Do you want pleasure? Do you want satisfaction? Do you want to know everything? Well, what you have to do is reject God and rebel against him to get that. And the lie that we've always believed since then is that true joy and true life is found outside of God. So what Adam and Eve do is they sin, they rebel against God, and rather than uh, getting all the things that they thought they would get, it only brings personal chaos and destruction in their own lives, but it also affects the world around them. Sin enters the world. And here's the story as it's shared in the Bible. Rather than the beauty and the glory and the goodness of the kingdom of God being multiplied over the whole world, it was the darkness and the chaos of sin and brokenness. Rather than Adam and Eve uh, bringing the goodness of the king and, and all that he was and all that he wanted for the world, they brought, the, the, the world itself became occupied territory for the enemy. The kingdom was lost. The kingdom was lost. Genesis chapter three. Um, when you think of sin, let me ask you, what comes to mind? Maybe this picture is what you think of when you think of your own sin. This is the biblical concept of shame. Shame says this, it's not just that I have done wrong, there's something wrong with me. Adam and Eve, the very first feeling they felt when they sinned was shame. And they ran from God and they hid because they didn't want God to look at them in their sin. But I just wanna say that this is a biblical idea for sure, but there is more to sin than the concept of shame. Because sin doesn't just affect us as individuals, it actually affects the world around us. So let me give you some other images so that you can expand your view of what sin is. Here's another one I want you to see. This is a result of sin. Truth be told, there's enough food in the world for everybody to be okay. But due to selfishness and greed and and us hoarding and not actually being willing to be creative about our resources, hunger and starvation exist. That's an effect of sin. Here's another picture. This is from the 1943 Detroit race riot where because of sin, it wasn't just this fracturing in my relationship with God as an individual, but it affected the people around me so much so that if you're a different color or you look different or act different or have a different culture, that I'm gonna look down on you and belittle you and maybe even physically harm you. This is a result of sin and brokenness. It's not just vertical, but it's horizontal. Here's another one. 
maybe you've seen this before. This is ISIS right before they beheaded, I think, about 21 Christians in Egypt. What's tragic about this is because of sin, now people use religion and this concept of a God to destroy and to hurt and to bring destruction. That's a result of the fall. Or maybe this. This is a a picture of the Las Vegas shooting that occurred not long ago. Because of sin, people have absolutely no value for human life in really stark, obvious ways like shootings or uh, think about the the, uh, hashtag MeToo movement of sexual scandal and abuse that's coming out right now where in really obvious ways, we just don't have any sort of respect or love for other people. And then finally, one other picture I wanna show you It's not just in really stark, obvious ways, but sin is even in more subtle, sly ways where we devalue people created in the image of God. And here's what I want you to hear, that sin doesn't just bring guilt personally between you and God, it does that, but it also brings profound corruption in our world. I I don't think that anybody would disagree if you look at our world right now, whether you're a Christian or not, liberal or conservative, grew up in the church or you're secular as can be, I think all of us could agree, our world is profoundly broken. Do you agree with that? Something has gone wrong. And what that thing is that's gone wrong is the kingdom of God has been lost as a result of our sin. The reign and the rule of God, we have rejected it, and now we live in a world that rather than being uh, under the submission of King Jesus, we're all under the the submission of Satan, this tyrant, this enemy. And this world, rather than being a world of light, it's a world of darkness. Now, this is the crazy thing that you have to see. In Genesis chapter three, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve. He says, hey, there's coming a day, though you've not just ruined this relationship with me, you've, you've actually ruined my good intentions for the world, but there's coming a day where I am going to send someone and he will rescue you. And not just rescue you in, the ter- in terms of forgiveness, but he will do something profound and actually bring wholeness and rescue to the world itself. There's coming a day where I'm gonna send someone and he will reestablish my kingdom. A king is gonna come and he's gonna fix everything. He's gonna make everything uh, the way that I intended it to be. And then if you fast forward from Genesis 4 onward, what you have is over time, the people of God, the people of Israel, king after king after king after king arises and then they fail. They arise to power and and everybody starts to hope, maybe this is the king that's gonna fix everything. And then they sin and they fail and they bring chaos to the people of God. And then finally, a guy like King David comes along and it's like, oh, it's King David. And, and, And there's peace and there's prosperity and everybody's thriving. And then David sins and David fails and the kingdom again takes a turn for the worst. And this happens over and over and over. And then finally, the Old Testament ends and there are 400 years of silence. 400 years where no king comes and God doesn't speak. Luke chapter one God breaks the silence. And the way he breaks it and what he says is profound. Now I want you to read chapter one again with new eyes and new ears and look at what's being said. Here's what he's saying. He's saying there's this king that's gonna come and he's gonna be great. He's gonna gonna actually sit on the throne of his father David and he's gonna have an eternal kingdom that will not ever end. The real king is going to come and he is going to fix everything. And then what we see happening in the story is Jesus, from that point on, he's born, and then he begins to uh, live in such a way that he's reestablishing the kingdom of God on 
earth, and it's profound. He goes up to people that are sick, and he heals them of their sickness. He goes up to people that are blind, and he gives them their eyesight back, because in the kingdom of God, there are no sick people, there are no blind people. He goes up to people that are dead, and he raises them from the dead, because in the kingdom of God, there are no people who are dead. This is profound, what God is doing. He's reestablishing his kingdom, and then he goes up to people that don't have a home, and aren't loved, and are sinful, and he loves them such a way, and invites them in in such a way, that it's reestablishing his original intention. The king comes, and he comes to reestablish his kingdom. So what is the kingdom? Let me just give you two uh, definitions that I found really, really helpful. This comes from George Ladd. He says, the kingdom of God is a realm over which our king exercises authority. And then Dallas Willard, I love this. He says, the kingdom is the range of God's effective will where what God wants done is done. And here's what you and I need to hear, that Jesus entering the world, this is not just the story of some baby or some political leader, or some religious zealot. This is the story of the true king, God himself, coming to the world and reestablishing his good kingdom, both dealing with our, our guilt as a result of sin and the corruption that was brought on the earth. That's what he's doing, both guilt and corruption. You see, what we've done is we've reduced this story to a personal story of salvation. Jesus has forgiven me. Yes, it is that, but it's even bigger than that. It's not just about you. It's also about the world. It's about the cosmos. It's about everything changing because this baby is not just a baby. This baby is the king. It's the answer to the promise in Genesis 3. Uh, I think a picture will speak a thousand words, so I want to show you this picture that I, I think is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. This is a picture of Eve in the garden filled with shame because of her sin, and then Mary with baby Jesus in the womb. And it's like there's this glimmer of hope for the first time that everything that was fractured and broken at the fall is gonna be put back right because of this little baby. That's what Christmas is all about. This creates hope, and this creates joy. Here, here's the second thing that I want you to see. It's not just that the true king has arrived. That's like big announcement right there. Here's the second announcement that's made in this passage. His kingdom is a kingdom of grace. It's not a meritocracy. A, a meritocracy is where if you uh, behave properly or if you have enough talent or gifting or enough wealth and status and power, if you have enough to offer others around you, then you can belong. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. This is a message not just about Jesus being king and coming into the world to reestablish his kingdom. This is a story about the most unlikely, unfit people being invited to come into his kingdom. Let me show you where I see this. I want you to notice who the announcement comes to in Luke chapter one. Look at verse 26. It says this, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Big deal, God's own personal angel. I want you to go share the most amazing news that has ever been shared before. Where are you gonna go? To a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Who is Mary? Well, if you're here and maybe you have a Catholic background, I don't mean any disrespect by this. In fact, I think most, most of the time Protestants have a really low view of Mary. Um, we could probably fix that. After all, she gave birth to God. It's kind of a big deal, right? 
So I don't mean this in any sort of disrespectful way, but if you ask the question, who is Mary? Here's the biblical answer to that question. She's an unsuspecting, economically poor, Jewish teenager from a blue-collar small village that nobody cared about. Mary is essentially a nobody. That's who she was. And for whatever reason, because of the grace of God, the one person, the, the first person to hear this amazing news that the king is arriving on the scene is not some powerful ruler. It's not some person that had it all together. It's not some really important person. It's Mary, a Jewish poor teenage girl. That's the one who receives this profound message that God is coming as a king to put back right everything that we did wrong with our sin. Now some of you go, well, but Mary must have been important. I mean, she must have been moral. She must have, like, God must have known that she was going to kill it in motherhood, and so he entrusted her to Jesus. And I would just say, we don't have any evidence of that from, from Scripture whatsoever. In fact, the most we know about Mary before uh, the birth of Jesus is in Luke chapter 1. She's only mentioned uh, before the birth of Jesus twice in the Gospels, and this is one of them. And so we're not given much, and we don't know anything about her. We don't know if she was a good person. We don't know if she was a moral person. We don't know if she was a religious person, if she had it all together. We know virtually nothing about her. She's just some random girl that God said, that's the type of person I love. Not someone special, just Mary. And I'm going to tell her about this great news, and she's going to be used to help reestablish my kingdom. There are other people of grace in the Christmas story. There's another lady we read about named Elizabeth. Who is Elizabeth? Elizabeth was an older woman who spent most of her life being barren, being unable to have children. Now, if you don't know anything about the first century or that culture, it was a patriarchal society. And if, if you're a woman, uh, your value in that culture was insofar as you're able to have children. If you weren't able to have children, you did not have any sort of value culturally whatsoever. In fact, if you weren't able to have kids, it was seen as a curse from God. It was seen that God was rejecting you, and people in your community would most likely belittle you and mock you and look down on you because of your complete inability to have children. It was a really, really painful thing in this culture, almost even more than it is in our culture, to be, to be someone that wasn't able to have children. Elizabeth is the second person to hear the good news about Jesus coming into the world. This old Barren woman is the second person. He comes to her and he says, I want you to know about this great story. And then if you fast forward to Luke chapter two, it's the shepherds. Who are they? You, you might think, well, they were really great guys and being a shepherd was a good job. No, it wasn't. Being a shepherd was reserved for the undereducated in the culture, the undervalued in society. By this time in history, if you were a shepherd, you were considered the low life. So here, God, he says, all right, Gabriel, go to Mary. All right, now we're going to go to Elizabeth. Now, Gabriel, what I want you to do is go to the, the shepherds in the field. They need to hear this news about the king that's coming into the world to rescue them, forgive them, and make everything right again. And then the, the last group of people in this scene is the magi, the wise men from the east. We think, well, they were great. They were the wise men, so of course God wanted to reveal himself to them. No, the wise men were pagan cultic leaders that basically spent their time stargazing and most likely worshiping the stars. And yet God said, these pagan guys over here that, that are wealthy and are uninterested in the God of the Bible, they need to hear about the king too. And I'm gonna draw them in and let them be a part of this story. Here's my point. There isn't a type when it comes to Christianity. 
There isn't a certain type of person. I hear this all the time from people in Oklahoma. Well, I can't be a Christian because I just, I'm not the type of person that could manage Christianity. I can't keep the rules enough. I'm not moral enough. I'm not good enough. That couldn't be further from the truth. There is no such thing as a certain person that is good for Christianity. You know who is good for Christianity? The most broken, sinful people in the world. Those are the types of people that Jesus chooses to draw near and invite to his kingdom. This is profound. If you're here and you came in today and you feel, you feel the weight of your own brokenness, this is a story for you. Christmas is the good news that Jesus, the real king, has entered our world and is inviting you to himself. If you're here today and you feel addicted, unable to fix yourself, you feel overwhelmed by the weight of your own past, you are the type of person that God wants to draw near to. You are the type of person that he wants to love. In fact, if you zoom out and you look at the life of Jesus from this point on as he grows up, the people that he is most drawn to and spends most of his time with, they're the, they're the sexually immoral, thieves, drunkards, gluttons. He hangs out with, uh, with uh, people that steal money from their own people and betray their own people. He hangs out with sinners of all shapes and all sizes. In fact, his nickname by the religious leaders throughout his ministry was, oh, there goes Jesus, the friend of sinners. Let this sink in. If you're here today and you're a sinner, Jesus wants to be your friend. Maybe you thought, oh, I've blown it. I've done too much. No, that's the only thing that makes you eligible for this type of rescue. He loves you. And his kingdom is not a kingdom that's a meritocracy. You do not need to earn your place. Come as you are. He is doing something profound and inviting to forgive you and to make all things new, and you don't have to do anything to deserve that. You can come as you are. This is great. I love that we have someone excited about this um, because he, here's what I want to do. I want to transition and just close us out and say it like this. Uh, where do we go from here with this great news that a king has arrived, the real king, the true king has arrived, and he's not just forgiving us. He's making all things new. Where do we go from here with that type of message? That his kingdom's not a meritocracy. It's a kingdom of grace for people that are busted up like you and I. Well, let me give you two things. Christmas creates a culture of joy. Christmas creates a culture of joy. And I don't mean because when you drive outside of your house, everybody has lights on their outside and there's gift exchanges and there's parties and there's eggnog and, and that's what is so joyful about Christmas. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not talking about superficial joy. I'm saying that the reality of what really is happening at Christmas, the reality of the announcement in Luke chapter one creates a profound sense of joy. Listen, the true king has arrived he did not leave us abandoned in our sin. He did not say, you know what, you've screwed up the world too bad, you're on your own. He saw, he noticed, he was moved to compassion, and God himself came to our world as a baby, the real king, and he comes not just to forgive you, but to fix everything. That is profound. Every drop of sin, every bit of shame that you have, God is putting it away in Jesus Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, if you're resting in Jesus, he is giving that freely to you. Listen, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You've been adopted by grace into the family of God. 
The curse of sin has been broken. Every ounce of corruption that exists in our world one day will completely be put away with and everything that's sad will one day become untrue. That creates joy. Listen to this song. Joy to the world. Why? The Lord is come. Let earth receive its king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. No more let sin and sorrow grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Is the curse found deep in your heart today? He comes to make his blessing flow deep in your heart today. Is the curse found in our world? He comes to make his blessing flow deep in our world. Is it found at your job and your family and your marriage, with your parenting, with your singleness, with your, se- with your sex life? Is, is the curse found in different areas? Yes, yes, yes. And he came to make his blessing flow. That creates joy. We've heard this too much, haven't we? For some of us, this is maybe one of a hundred times that we've heard this story. Maybe hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times we've heard this story. So it's hard, to, it's hard to let it sink in deep in your heart, isn't it? It's hard to celebrate this and become a people that just have a culture of joy because of what God has done. So here's what I want to do. I want to just show you a quick video of a village in Papua New Guinea that heard this news for the first time. What's so crazy about this village is there had been a few people that had spent several weeks with them, weeks upon weeks, slowly, methodically telling them the story of Jesus. They finally got to the cross, and they finally got to the resurrection, and then they, in this video, you're going to see they're articulating what this means for them, and, uh, and I think their response is going to give us a grid for maybe how we should learn to respond as a group of people. Watch this video. Different ones giving testimony as to their belief in Christ as their sin bearer. Mark saying that if they really are believing, then God's word says that their sin is forgiven. Itau, it's good, it's true. Spontaneous rejoicing breaks out. This went on for two and a half hours. If you see that and you think they overdid it, I would say that they maybe started to scratch the surface of what God was really doing at Christmas. Hey, hey, can I say this as your pastor? You have permission to celebrate like that. Maybe, just maybe, it's okay to raise your hands when we sing great songs to Jesus, right? Yeah, it's okay to clap and be happy. Christmas creates a culture of joy, and I would say not just you only, it's not that you have permission, you really have every reason to just go bananas because of what God has done for you. Your sin is forgiven, and he's going to make everything new. That's, that's profound. In a culture filled with horrible news and scandal and cynicism and darkness at every turn, Wouldn't it be beautiful if a group of people had a robust, theologically informed joy that just changed the way we lived and it actually drew the outside world in on what Jesus really is doing?
That's the invitation for you. I want this to create a culture of joy in our church. And then second thing, Christmas doesn't just create a culture of joy, it also, lastly, it creates a culture of hope. Christmas creates a culture of hope. Last week, I attended a funeral for uh, a friend. He was a man that was a member of our downtown congregation, um, loved this guy, didn't know him super well, but was able to have coffee with him on occasion and just tragically died at 51. And uh, I was dressed up to go to his funeral, and I never wear a suit. So it became really obvious to me that I never wear a suit because I had everybody was asking me, why are you so dressed up? Where are, you, where are you headed? What are you doing? And then when I'd tell them I'm going to a funeral, they're like, oh, I'm sorry for asking, you know. And they felt weird about asking. But uh, the whole day, where are you headed? What are you doing? Why are you so dressed up? I'm going to a funeral, headed to a funeral, I'm about to attend a funeral. And then I just had the thought, because of Jesus, there's coming a day where I'll never say that again. I'll never say that again. And I've, I, I think at Christmas time, it's hard because a lot of us have tragic stories at Christmas. Spouses that left, people that we love that died, tragedy at every corner, at every turn. And so Christmas is hard. And I would say this, it's possible to be a Christian and be sad. It's possible, possible to be a Christian and mourn. It's even possible to be a Christian and to weep. But it's, it's not possible to mourn as those who have no hope. It's not possible because everyone that has loved Jesus and died is gonna be made alive again in Christ, given a new body, right? Every sad thing is gonna come untrue. The brokenness of sin is gonna be put away with and the world will finally have the curse fully lifted off. I I use this analogy all the time, so forgive me, but I think the beauty and the beast nails it at the end. In fact, the Beauty and the Beast at the end is more accurate about the return of Jesus than every left-behind book that Tim LaHaye ever wrote, right? If I stepped on your toes, I'm really not sorry about that one. So here's what happens at the end of Beauty and the Beast. I love this. I've got three kids, so this is a movie we watch all the time in my house. When Belle kisses the beast, what happens? The curse is lifted. This ugly, dark, gross castle, now all of a sudden we see it in its beauty and it's amazing. People that used to be human beings that are now in, inanimate objects. There's still like some semblance of a human in there somewhere, but it's, it's a teacup or it's, a, it's a, a dresser or whatever. When the curse is lifted, they become human again. Guys, when Jesus returns, which is what we're anticipating in this Advent season, when he returns from heaven to earth, he is going to make all things new. And the curse will be lifted, and you will finally fully be the human that God intended you to be. You will see the world the way you're supposed to see the world. You will not be sucked off this planet and sitting on a cloud for the rest of your days. God is coming and bringing heaven to earth, and you will live out your days here with him as the king, being re- realizing, I never should have been here. It's only because of your grace that I'm here anyway. And every sad thing has come untrue. That creates hope. There's nothing that could drown out the hope of Jesus and what he's doing is the king. This is amazing. I want this to sink deep in our heart and change the way that we live. I want to invite you. Would you stand with me? Man, maybe you're here today and you don't feel joy. I get that. And you know, I know I should, I know I should celebrate. I don't feel like celebrating. Instead of just feeling bad about that, could you today in this moment just admit that to God and say, God, my heart is more apathetic than I wish it was. I wish I could celebrate more than I do. I don't know why I hold back. 
but just begin to confess that to God and say, would you create in me a heart that is just filled with joy? Not, not surfaced, cultural-level happiness. I'm talking about profound joy at Jesus the King coming back to this world. Or maybe today you're here and you don't have any hope. And you're forgetting. You're forgetting. We know the end of the story. The end of the story is that he makes all things new. He lifts the curse and everything is made right. And if this could sink in in our church and we as a people, the people of God, could have a culture of joy and a culture of hope, it would change the way that we love God and love people and push back darkness in our community. It would. Because now it would have substance and heart and soul behind it. And people that are now disinterested in Christianity would be very, very, very interested at what God is up to. 